I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. The theme of this week's show is quiet, and joining me in conversation is Arenda Fink. Arenda Fink is a professional musician, songwriter, performer, and writer. She's been writing, recording, releasing, and touring on critically acclaimed records since 1997. Arenda got her start in Birmingham, Alabama, with the pop rock group Little Red Rocket, which penned a deal with Geffen Records in 1996. In 2000, Arenda formed the lauded duo Azure Ray with longtime friend Maria Taylor in Athens, Georgia. Azure Ray released and toured on six records throughout their lengthy career, co-wrote songs with Moby, had their music featured in film and TV, and have enjoyed a cult following that still thrives today. Arenda relocated to Omar in 2003 and has since written and recorded collaborative albums under many different monikers, R in Manila, O Plus S, Haruki Zombie, as well as three solo records. Her current projects are Closeness, an electronic duo with her husband, Todd Fink of The Faint, and High Up, a band with her sister, Christine, on vocals, and Arenda on songwriting, horn, and guitar duties. Arenda, thanks for coming into the studio. Thanks for having me. You're a well-known musician. Uh, and the theme of this week's show is quiet, which may seem an odd pairing. And so when you think about quiet, what does that mean to you? And perhaps what does that mean to your music? Well, I really appreciate quiet, actually. And um, so much so that like when I first got married to Todd, you know, who is also in a band, and we kind of had this thing where we had to um come together on an agreement about how much quiet we have in our mutual space because um well actually how how it started was that whenever there was quiet whether it's in the car or at home he would put on music and and his choices of music were very different from what what I would choose first of all because he's into electronic music and um and second of all or so I, so I think I at one point I said I wish I could put my music on. And he was like, well, you just never put any music on. So I fill up the space. And then that's, that got me to thinking, I think what I like even more is the space. And um, so quiet is really important to me. And I think a lot of my creativity has to come out of quiet. I have to have a quiet space. I mean, I think I generally prefer to sit alone in silence than... Um, and then, and then out of the silence, if, if I think of something that I want to hear, that it comes from a place that, that wasn't just off the cuff, you know, it's comes from a place that almost had to curate it out of the silence of like, what's, what's appropriate for this mood or this inspiration. I came across a statement that Louis Armstrong said that the important notes were the ones that he didn't play, mm-hmm. which really speaks to that. I think that idea that you're talking about, it's, it's those moments in between that can be really, um, creative and informative and I wonder if you think about that same concept when you're creating music about the spaces in between or or, or the moments where perhaps there is no noise yeah I mean I think that there's there's a strong component of that in what I make because I mean I think for two reasons one I'm not a virtuosic musician so I think by nature my parts are very simple and so it's how, how do you um, take, you know, the abilities that you have and, and create something that reflects 
the the mood and the emotion that um or you know the concept that you want to display and i think for me um i've always kind of yeah like been drawn to the simplicity and in that simplicity there is a a lot of space in between you know even the I don't usually put a ton of lyrics. I don't fill up all the space with lyrics. Like, so you have to kind of think about like, you know, yeah, not just what you're saying and your melody, but what those spaces in between also say. You mentioned that um, you're not a virtuosic musician. So how, how did getting involved in music start for you? Kind of by accident where I, uh, I lived in a very small town in Alabama and um, wanted to get out of that small town. And one of the ways that that I um, devised was to audition for this uh, fine arts high school in Birmingham, where if you got in, you could you could go there even though, you know, you weren't in that zip code. And I, I went for theater. So I got in and I started going. But what what happened was, you know, I was still living in the small town, commuting with my father, but I lost all my friends in the small town. And, you know, in high school, that's pretty, it's a pretty lonely uh, place to find yourself in. So, and this was back in the days when um, there were no cell phones and actually like from city to city was long distance. So I couldn't even really call my new friends. So, um, I think it was uh, my parents' idea. They they went and borrowed an acoustic guitar from a neighbor just as like something for me to do to fill up my time, like a hobby at home. So I taught, started teaching myself how to play guitar. And then at the Fine Arts High School, I was noodling around on another friend's guitar. She actually played it as a major. And Maria Taylor from Azure came up and was like, oh, you play guitar? Let's start a band. And that's how it started. <laughs> So we we were theater and dance, and then we graduated and both went into music fields. But we're we're both self-taught. So tell me a little bit more about your upbringing then. So you mentioned being in a small town, and, and that feels very familiar, I think, to maybe many people. Um, where were you born, and, and, and what was that early experience for you like? I was born in Birmingham, Alabama, and um, my parents moved around quite a bit, I think not for any other reason except for maybe – just, um, I don't know, like maybe looking for something that they couldn't find, you know, and, and the kids just kind of went along for the ride. So in my childhood, I switched schools every year, which I feel like, um, now kind of looking back and thinking about my personality and how it formed and reading some psychological profiles of people who moved as children every year. I think it really kind of, um, made me kind of almost like have a chameleon type personality where, you know, it's very important for me to want to be accepted and um, kind of fit in, but also, you know, like it took me a little while to like really know myself because I was always trying to fit in with everyone. And and especially like having a name like Orinda Fink (laughs) and being the new girl every year, like I had to try extra hard, I think, to, you know, not be the weird new kid maybe, uh, and could even be why I'm a performer, you know, how that kind of translates into that type of personality. But, um, but then we ended up kind of settling in Asheville, Alabama, which is, was like population 1500. And that would have been when I was in the sixth grade. And, uh, so that was weird too, because I definitely didn't feel like I belonged there. And, uh, my older sister, uh, quickly, 
did she did feel like she belonged there and she kind of assimilated into this very like kind of you know backwards small town Alabama country life and I was the complete opposite so I was just kind of like where does that leave me you know and it kind of left me like up to my own devices to figure out how I was going to get out of this town and so ultimately it ended up being music. I wonder if people didn't know you but they just listened to your entire body of music if they could intuit what your personality was. Yeah I think so I mean I think the it, it's kind of though at least for for my career it, it might just show one side of me because like I said like the way I used music for the most part was for a catharsis so kind of you know if you're listening to my catalog it's it's going to be pretty sad <laughs> but I'm not inherently a you know a sad person all around I mean I'm pretty happy most of the time but I think um you know that I definitely have that uh very deep feeling side of my personality that um that I am able to kind of exercise uh through music solo album, Blue Dream, you reference finding our interior gods through dreams. And I need to ask you to unpack that a little bit. What, what do you mean by interior gods? And then maybe we'll talk about how you access that through dreaming. Yeah, I, I, what I meant by that was this kind of um, internal wisdom that is spiritual in nature. I think a lot of us these days are not necessarily religious um, like we were 20, 30, 40 years ago. Every once in a while, you know, you might have an existential crisis where you're like, oh, I, I have kind of forgotten to think about what happens when I die. You know, like wh what is my spiritual framework? And that's what happened to me um, before that record. And I think so. So what I mean by finding your interior God is finding that idea of of kind of what you feel comfortable with about the nature of life and death within within yourself. And um, I was able to explore that in my dreams. So for me, I feel like that if you kind of listen to the archetypes in your dreams and the messages, um, you know, if you're lucky enough, then you can receive that wisdom for yourself. And it's, it's a lot more meaningful than I think kind of scrolling through the world religions and trying to find one that fits you, your personality, um, because there's no better authority than your own self. 
How did you stumble across this idea that, that dreams were, um, say, a portal to the unconscious landscape that we have? In my past, like when I was young, I think when I was 15, um, I started having these types of dreams. And I had a span of two weeks where every night what I dreamt came true. And it completely changed how I thought about everything, really. I, did, I still didn't have any answers for anything, but I, it was, it shook me up enough that, um, you know, I constantly have a very open mind, literally, about what is the nature of dreams and reality and the afterlife and the future and the past and the present, how they all relate to each other. So since then, I I have them every once in a while. And, um, and so I know that that exists within my mind. And when I started going to therapy a couple of years ago, um, I went to this woman here in town who is a union analyst. And um, I was going actually because I was grieving over my dog that had died. Um, I'd had him for 16 years. And I, I think it just broke something in me that was almost ready to break anyway. And so I needed to see someone. So I began to see her and she was the first one to ask me had I had any dreams about it. And at that point I hadn't, I had really had just like a blackout of dreams, but, but her just simply asking the question, um, just started the dreams and they started, started at that point, And then we did two years of, uh, union dream therapy together. To maybe put a slightly different interpretation or lens through which we can think about the idea of quiet one of the phrases that I'm starting to get used to in, I guess it's more social justice movements, is the idea of being woke. As you were talking, it seemed to describe to me that there is a landscape to which we need to be, personally, our interior lives need to be woken up to. If we're truly going to awaken those currently becalmed possibilities within us, you have to go and experience something. You have to open yourself to it quite, quite literally. I, I agree with that. And I think that that's something that, um, I feel like is missing in a little bit of these, uh, movements is that, you know, it's become very academic, almost too academic because the thing is we're all messy, sloppy human beings, (laughs) you know, and, and there's so many components to, um, to being woke or, you know, and I, would not even say I'm close to there. You know, it's like it's an ongoing journey for until you die because there's so many different types of people and so many different types of um, circumstances and, you know, with different hopes and dreams and cultural conditions and that, you know, you, you really just have to spend your, your whole life being open. But I think that that visiting, you know, directly visiting someone and spending time with them is something that is important because... I think ultimately what what you want to do is is know, not just think, but know that, you know, we are all brothers and sisters in this. Like we are connected by our souls by a, or, or the, the collective unconscious, you know, some, something much greater than just our ethnicity or what country we're from or what color our skin is. It's much, much, much greater than that. This is where I, I, I get to sort of confess to what I was alluding to earlier about um, being sort of overwhelmed and, and maybe even slightly intimidated by you. And it's because, I think it's because you have a talent that I don't have, which is the ability 
to turn to an artistic form and touch people and touch people in ways that cut through straight to their heart, straight to the emotions. And you get to enliven people's spirits through what you do. And so in a way, you get rid of the the suffocating quiet and, and you bring something really quite magical to people. And I don't know if that's a talent that you're aware of or if it's just something that you just exist within it. Well, thank, that's so beautifully put. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't I don't really think of it that way, I guess, because like I said, I've been doing it for so long. And when I started basically as a child, um, you know, that wasn't the idea at all. You know, it, it was just a compulsion to create you know, and even it took a couple of years to, and some experiences in life to, to realize that, um, that the, the best way for me to serve myself, so it was a very um, selfish direction, was to be, um, was to tackle my darkest emotions, my hardest emotions, and be um, very honest about them. That was something I did for myself. And I, didn't expect that it would be popular or, you know, touch people the way it did. Maria, neither Maria and I did, but, but it did. And so, um, I think, you know, the, the only way I can see it is just, I'm just incredibly lucky <laughs> to be, to be able to, to do that. Beyond your dreams, are there practices that you have or behaviors or, or techniques that are your go-to uh, tools to find quiet and to encourage this, the, the muses. Yeah, I um, I mean, I tend to n- need to be alone to write. Um, and so, and that kind of means either no one else is in the house or or we're on very different floors far, far apart from each other. And, and then, yeah, I do create out of silence. So it, it, I need to be very still and I need everything to be very quiet and, you know, I'll kind of, so then it's almost like you need to feel alone and it's hard. I feel like we use noise to not feel alone. It takes up that loneliness feeling. So if you kind of remove yourself from everything and make it quiet, then you start to feel like, you know, that I think it was like, did you ever hear that Louis C.K. skit where he's talking about um, I, I, something like driving in his car and turning it, either having the radio on or turning it off, and he's like, and he just like pulled over and started crying because he actually felt his feelings for once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think that's what quiet does is it, it starts to um, allow some of the things that you push back um, to move forward. And, um, you know, those are most of the time, unless you're looking to write about something or create something, you don't want those things because they are not pleasant. Um, and they force you to kind of, you know, maybe deal with some truths you don't want to deal with, Mm. but they're important. They're important whether you are creating something or not to, um, to, to face. You are one. 
couple years ago, uh, I got diagnosed with a heart condition, and it was um, a misdiagnosed childhood condition, but that kind of came to a head and needed to be taken care of very quickly. So I had to have this heart procedure done, and I'd never even had surgery before, on, you know, in any capacity. So just immediately going in for heart surgery was quite mind-blowing for me. But um, up until that point, and so I, I had to stop drinking alcohol, and I realized, you know, I had not not drank something, a glass of wine, you know, some kind of drink as a nightcap in 15 years. And so it wasn't that I considered myself an alcoholic. It's just, I drank every day and I was kind of, so I was really struggling with like, how, um, how am I going to go to sleep at night or how, how am I going to turn my brain off? Which that's what I realized I used alcohol for. It's like, oh, it's 10 o'clock and I'm, I need to turn this thing off. I need a glass of wine, which I think a lot of us use alcohol for. And, um, and so, but, so I was terrified to not engage in some kind of mind-altering substance by the cutoff point where I had just decided I need to shut it down. So my therapist worked, you know, worked with me on that. And she's like, what, what are you afraid of? You know, what are you trying to stop? I'm like, I don't know, but it seems like really scary (laughs) and I don't want to find out. But it turns out it was nothing. It was the fear that was the the most terrifying part of it, um, of, of just sitting with yourself in in an uncomfortable place. And but once you do it, you it becomes comfortable. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about having to holding a hand out and shaking the hand of your mortality. Well, it sucked <laughs> really bad. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but it. <laughs> I'm not going to mince words. It was not fun at all. <laughs> um, but I'm I'm thankful that I have I got to go through that and be okay. Um, it makes me want to cry to think about uh, you know so many of my friends and and their loved ones that went through it and weren't okay. You know that have had terminal cancer and died from cancer and, or have cancer right now. Um, it has given me such a greater appreciation. So ultimately, I'm yeah extremely grateful and thankful that I that I got to go through that. But it it's terrifying, and and it's sad, and it actually you know um, it made me very sad. Uh, just when you think like okay, the universe is done with me for whatever reason, whether it's on a spiritual framework or not, it's it's just such a sad feeling because all of a sudden you just feel like there's no one rooting for you anymore. Like you've been discarded. You're done. And that's a, it's a, just a dark, sad feeling to go through. It's important though. I think that we all, um, one of the things we avoid, maybe probably the most thing that we, or most of it that we avoid is our ideas about our mortality. And it's probably just creeping in there behind all the other little anxiety chatter stuff. Well, as we're on the theme of um, physical ailments, let's talk about voice rest and being oh, nervous yeah. about your voice. Yeah, this this actually probably has the most to do with with quiet of anything uh, for me in the last you know ten or fifteen years. But so uh, I've had some troubles with my voice for many years, and it's um, but I've never actually like gone to a doctor to see what it is because I kind of figured it was like a node or something that I just needed to work on um, my singing um, approach. 
But it started getting worse and worse last uh, year. And so I went and had my throat scoped, and it turns out that I have cysts on my vocal cords. And they need to be removed. But before uh, I was able to get that diagnosis, I had to do two weeks of complete silent voice rest, and which meant no talking, no sounds, no utterance of, of any resonance whatsoever. It wasn't obviously as bad as getting heart surgery, but it was close in the emotional um, landscape of just kind of swimming in and out of this kind of like depression and um, self-reflection. And uh, I spent one week at home and I spent one week at a, a friend's lake house, which was even more quiet because I was literally, I wasn't speaking and I was in um, complete silence. And that was, that was dark to you. Cause I feel like it's almost the same feeling in a way. Like if you remove your voice, you feel like you're removed from this thing that we're all participating in. And you start kind of feeling like you're on the outside looking in. And that's a, like, it's, it's just part, I guess part, I think, to that lonely feeling of feeling alone and isolated. Did you feel as if you were in some ways hour by hour just receding from reality? Yes, especially when I was in public because, um, and that, that's why I wanted to go spend some time by myself um, to kind of relieve that feeling somewhat. But yeah, I think it, at some point, you know, all my friends and my husband, they they just got used to me not saying anything. And then in, out in public, it was also a little uncomfortable because, I mean, people didn't really know how to respond to it. And you you know, it's it's not worth writing down what's happening. They just know that you can't speak. And so that that made for some very, like, I don't know, uncomfortable interactions for me, I think. But, yeah, so I felt like I just literally had no voice, you know, and, and things that I would normally speak up. You had to think about every single thing that you're communicating because is this worth writing down? And that, I mean, it was a good reflection for myself of, like, how much ridiculous garbage I spew out of my mouth every day <laughs> or how many, how many critical things I say, you know, to my sister or my husband. Um, it's like, you don't, you don't write a criticism down. It's something that comes out of your mouth before you know that you've done it. So when I couldn't speak, I could catch these, I, I, I would have said that, but I didn't say it. So they didn't even know that it existed. And then seeing that space where my criticism would have, would have been and seeing their, their freedom from it, um, made me even sadder <laughs> about myself. <laughs> oh, about yourself. About I thought myself. you were going to say that I couldn't just tell them what no, I thought. No, no, I was, I, I felt like, again, like I was, I was seeing myself from a different lens and I was kind of ashamed of my past behavior and, and was hoping to take that as like a lesson moving forward. It sounds like you, you did some interior improvement and I'm just wondering if a bit like a diet, that's all slipped away again. Good question. I think I've maintained a little bit of it, but yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because that's something, and I think it's just like everything. You, you, you go through this epiphany and then, and then it's up to you to kind of manage that like a garden throughout the rest of your life. If you forget about it, then yeah, it's just going to grow back up into the same old thing. But, um, and I think that's why we need kind of reminders in life, um, to, to get ourselves back on the right track to be our best selves. Did you find that once people got used to the fact that you weren't in a position to respond to them, they stopped directing any 
attention to you? Um, that there, there about half the people did that and half the people just spoke to me as normal. So it was interesting. It was, it was like different people had different ways of, uh, responding to it. So sometimes I'd have to be like, you can talk to me as much as you want to. It's, we don't need to sit here in silence. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but then like, you know, my husband and my sister, I think because they're so comfortable, they just talked as if, you know, we, I was speaking, which was nice. Yeah. Yeah. How has this shaped into your music? In the last few years, I've definitely um, kind of have like new priorities, I think, about music and that I want to, like what, what, what I do, I want to be um, more curated and more thought out. Um, I don't know. I mean, right now I'm working with Todd on closeness, which is our electronic project. And I think, um, that was something that came out of the heart surgery because it was something that I realized, like I really wanted to do that I'd never done before. And then being in a band with my sister is also one of those things. Um, so it's almost like I've kind of retreated a little bit away from my solo work, which is the most personal to these collaborations with my family. And so I'm kind of now just kind of finding a way to, put that intentionality into these projects. I'm not sure how any one of us defines this, but would you consider yourself a private person? I don't know. I mean, maybe to some degree, it, it the world has changed so much in that regard. Um, you know, when I first started playing m- music, I mean, essentially all public figures were private to some degree. There was just... Um, there's only so much you can give away when the, the way that your, your platform is just like some magazine articles. Now, you know, it's obviously you, you have to like be posting what you're eating for breakfast and every little nuanced part of your life and, um, interacting with trolls on Twitter. And I, I don't think there's going to be a part of me that ever wants to do that, um, even if it means my career suffering for it. So in that regard, maybe I am a private person, but I'm also kind of an open book too. There's not a lot of things that, you know, in a thoughtful conversation I I wouldn't talk about. I'm trying to imagine and empathize with what it would be like to be someone whose life has been cathartically expressed through music to then be told, there's an issue and you you are going to be quiet for two weeks. Plus, you still don't necessarily know what life has in store for you. And I'm just wondering if this sort of sits in the back of your mind and, and worries you or if you've developed th- that fortitude from the other experiences you've had to to talk to yourself openly about these challenges. That's a good question. And, and I did kind of tackle that when I was at the lake house by myself I did a lot of writing like just kind of um journal writing you know not necessarily songwriting or poems or anything but like how I actually felt you know um whether it's correct or not you know but um yeah it's very scary it's like I mean I still have to have surgery and recovery and then you don't know what's on the other side of that but I do feel like yeah the heart surgery and just kind of facing my mortality um has really put things into perspective for me and 
if it turned out that the surgery was not successful and I couldn't sing anymore, well, I'll do something else, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm okay, you know? I'm not dying and, or in, you know, immediate danger, even though we all technically are. But you know what I mean? Um, I can at least go, slip back into the illusion of um, immortality for a little bit longer, but... But yeah, so I think that, that my experiences have changed how I, I feel. I think I would have been really, really freaking out at some point in my life. But, you know, it's like, well, maybe I'll be a writer. Or, um, I don't know, start a business or something. I mean, there, you don't have to just do one thing your whole life. So, I mean, I hope that it's, it is a success, but um, I don't think it's going to, like, ruin me or anything if it's not. You seem so incredibly balanced. <laughs> And optimistic. <laughs> you should talk to my sister. <laughs> she sees all my neurotic side. Okay. <laughs> but you keep your neurotic side to... To family to the, only. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> In conversation with me today has been Arenda Fink. This has been a real pleasure and a privilege. Thank you, Arenda. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. listening to lives i'm Stuart chittenden the theme of this week's show is quiet and joining me in conversation is brother james dowd in september 2016 brother james dowd of the order of the holy cross joined the staff of the episcopal diocese of nebraska for a two-year position as monk in residence brother james's ministry focuses on enriching our prayer and spiritual life and discovering and building better ways to befriend the poor in our communities from his base at Trinity Cathedral in Omaha, Brother James also assists in coordinating the cathedral's daily prayer life, serves as chaplain to the downtown Episcopal outreach community, preaches regularly at Trinity Cathedral, and is available as a guest preacher to the larger diocese. Prior to entering the monastery, Brother James lived in his hometown of New York City, where for 20 years he worked as a director of more than 100 theater productions and numerous live events for television. Brother James, welcome. Thank you so much, Stuart. It's great to be here. So theme of the show is quiet. And when you think of quiet, I wonder what that, that conjures up for, for you individually as a person. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, that's a great question because it means a lot of different things, obviously, to different people. For me, it's, it's a way of life. So what I mean by that is I like to talk about 
having a contemplative life more than specifically contemplative prayer, because there's actually the contemplative prayer is just a piece of it. And the overall sense of quiet or in the Benedictine tradition of which I've come, we talk about it in terms of silence and we talk about uh, silence and the greater silence. And so silence is the type of thing that we do during the workday where we are free to talk whenever we need to talk. If we're engaged in some kind of ministry, if we're doing some work around the monastery, that sort of thing, obviously you can't work without speaking to each other sometimes. And then the greater silence are the 12 hours overnight in which we are completely silent. So first of all, that makes up quiet for us, right? The, the balance of the two um, in which we are attempting and I use that word strongly, attempting, to never speak frivolous things or things that lead us or the hearer away from a sense of peace, a sense of joy, a sense of calm. How do we go about embracing or perhaps reasserting or insulating ourselves from modern pressures so that we can have the benefits and, and possibly the beauty that comes with this kind of silence? I think that the first way is is as old as the scripture, right? It's it's keep a Sabbath day. It doesn't matter to me what day of the week that is. So, for example, my day off is not a Sunday, right? It's some other day of the week because on Sunday I need to be in church. So there was an understanding that Sabbath is really important and we have almost completely lost that. Right, even if you're not actually at a workplace, um, there's often, you know, you're running around with your kids and soccer matches on Sunday mornings, and you know, from early to late on all weekend long, as well as during the week, people are moving. So the first thing I would say is the Sabbath day. The second thing I think is important is to develop some type of meditative life, right? And what meditation does for you, and every tradition has a form of it. Um, and what the end is, is learning to be quiet in the presence of God. If, if people can find, if they've never done this before, if they can find even five minutes a day, maybe it's at the start of their day, maybe it's on their lunch hour, maybe it's before they go to bed at night, to be intentionally quiet, meaning the television, the internet, the radio, everything is turned off. Other people aren't speaking to you. You're not on the phone. You're not checking your messages. None of that. If the entire world would do that, so much of what we experience in the world in terms of the violence and the greed would evaporate. I'm not saying it's the, it's the only thing we have to do. There are issues of poverty and all sorts of things we have to address, right? But because we are so tense, there is no way that we can be loving to each other and treat each other as neighbors on a consistent basis if we don't nurture the quiet that calls to us from within us. I think it reflects a growing number of contemporary trends which seem to have arisen in response to some of the modern pressures that you've, you've mentioned. I remember fax machines being new and being quite fascinated by all of that, right? To say nothing of the internet and cell phones and messaging and, and all these other things in which you are expected to constantly be aware, no matter the time of day or night, no matter the day of the week, 
of all of that information that's coming into you, whether it's personal, whether it's professional, whether it's outside news, you're, for some reason, the expectation has become that you must be completely aware of it and respond immediately. That is not how all of the rest of humanity throughout all of human history has lived. There's no such thing as what we're doing. So I am in, I use the internet. I think it, it can be a great tool. But we need to really be careful here because we don't actually understand and no one in our generation is going to understand until we're long gone what the effect on humanity is. Thomas Merton, one of the great Trappist monks of all time, he's uh, when Pope Francis was speaking before Congress, he, he quoted him, and he was an American monk um, out of Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky. He died in 1968. And Merton talked about, he was, resp- he was really the first to respond to the new world. And his new world, not meaning the continents, but meaning uh, in the post-atomic age and in the mechanization of life. Okay, so again, he died in 1968, so he's writing in the late 40s, 50s, and 60s. And it's nothing like what we experience now. And what Merton talked about was um, a complete loss of civility because, for one reason, and that was because man no longer had any time for quiet. That the um, life of humanity was so dragged down by what we were living through in those decades, uh, by the noise of it, the pace of it, um, that men could no longer, of course, he was always using that men, you know, he wasn't talking about, but he meant humanity. Uh, He was, that they could no longer live peacefully with each other, or in a way that was in any way uplifting or communal. And so you've just come back from a silent retreat. That's right. And I'd like to hear more about why you went, where it was, how you experienced it, and and then we can talk about what the implications were for you as a person. Okay, sure. So um, it is um, traditional in, in my order that we'll take one retreat a year for eight days away from the monastery. We do a second one within the monastery, within that community, right? But this one is, is to go away uh, on your own schedule to a different place. So I went to Our Lady of the Desert in, um, outside of Blanco, New Mexico. It's uh, in northern New Mexico near the Colorado border. Um, desert everywhere, you know, it's Benedictine nuns who are particularly contemplative, almost Trappist-like. What you in this particular place, what you do is, you know, they have they hold both the major hours and the minor hours. And if you know anything about monasticism, that's all the different prayer hours of the day. The psalmist says, you know, I will praise you seven times a day, Lord. And so a tradition developed that at seven different points in the day, monks or nuns would gather and would pray the the various psalms. The whole rest of the day is silent anything but those times. And I got to tell you, it's glorious. Even for someone who practices a great deal of silence himself to walk into that silent of an atmosphere where surrounding and gloriously the internet doesn't even work there, you know, like they don't have enough (laughs) bandwidth and all that stuff. So you're really cut off. And the week I was there was the week that the news came out that President Trump had fired the FBI director, Jim Comey. 
And I didn't know about any of that until the weekend when it was over. And I got back. My sister lives in Santa Fe, and I went to visit her at the end of the retreat. And then I see this, that the whole, you know, the whole political thing had blown up again. And I thought that was fascinating because I'm a, I'm a real news junkie. And I think it's important for people who care about spirituality to, to be aware of the news and to know what's going on and to be involved in change, you know, for good. Uh, but in the craziness of this past election transition and now in the early months of the Trump administration, it's become a, you know, like a thing for me. Like, I just can't believe, you know, <laughs> just reading with wide eyes. Is it painful? Eight days with silence. And so I would imagine that you can hear yourself and the natural world very loudly. Very and I wonder if that's how uncomfortable that is for you. It can be. I'll tell you, the very first time I did this, I was um, not quite 21. I was 20 years old. The first silent retreat I took, and that was only a five-day silent retreat. And one of my buddies that I was in uh, formation with, um, puts a note under my door, <laughs> help, I'm being held hostage <laughs> by a group of crazy people <laughs> who want me to be silent, you know. And I've laughed about that ever since. Um, as a young man, it was really hard. It became easier. Part of it was practice, but part of it was, I mean, when I was 20 years old, that was 35 years ago, you know. We didn't have, all these things we're talking about didn't even exist. Right. So now it is, it is not painful for me. I, I would say it's not painful for me. It is, it's challenging because a serious enough contemplative life will put you in the position to have to face the truth about a lot of things, but most of all about yourself. And so the truth you, you end up facing oftentimes is, where you're letting yourself down, where you started to buy your own PR, where, you know, um, you haven't quite lived up to the goals of what your particular vocation was, that sort of thing. And that's why it's so important to do it because it, it allows you to, it's like a, a, a checkup, you know, and it, okay, we just need to fix this little thing and then we're going to be back to good health. Mm. That's what that's about. I'm, I'm wondering what you've recognized about yourself as you have continued to to uh, em embrace and embark upon these silent practices? Mm -hmm. I would say um, in the contemplative life, we talk a lot about demons. Uh, the, old, the ancient monastics in the desert used to talk about, about literal demons. Um, in more contemporary times, we talk about them in terms of um, a psychological you know, issues or things to deal with. Um, I'm actually sort of at the point in my life where I kind of believe both things, 
I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if the old ancient guys knew a little bit of something that we pre- want to pretend don't, doesn't exist. But I think one of the things you do when you explore a contemplative life is you encounter those demons, be they psychological or funny little things flying around in the room, you know, whatever. So the challenge for me is always the demon of loneliness and the angel of solitude. And it's really two sides of the coin. My, I would say my biggest demon in life has always been loneliness. Um, and that is terrifying to me, depressing to me. Oh God, I'm always going to end up, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the other side, which is the most beautiful expression I have of my vocation and at most joyful is solitude. And the difference there is, is God present or not? When I go to the place of loneliness, it means that I have pushed out God. I've said I'd rather sort of stay focused on the idol of loneliness. That's you know, and push you out because I I I, I can't handle this. And when I go to when I go to solitude, I am never alone. I am always with God. God can't not be present. So you hail from New York City, mm-hmm. and maybe we should start just by me asking you about your upbringing in, in that area. Mm-hmm. So I was born in Queens and, and raised in Queens and on near in Long Island, so um, in an uh, ethnic Roman Catholic family, uh, sort of half Irish, half Italian. There was a few other little things thrown in there, but that's basically how we identified and there was still, a, first of all, with our extended family who lived very nearby, that it was always a lot of people. My father was a New York City fireman, and he had a real, they all had a real sense of brotherhood. We'd call each other brother. And they were often around as well, you know. So they were always, and then very involved in the church and all of that. So there was a sense of a neighborhood, of family, of firemen, of, you know, all these people that... Um, created a very safe environment as a child. As a teenager, you know, it was uh, going into teen angst, started and, and the need to separate from the family, and you know, which every teen goes through, is really what I think cr- started to create that feeling. And at the same time, I had a strong feeling of being um, called to religious life, which required celibacy. But I'm still a teenager figuring out sex, you know. So what all that means, I had no idea. And that just created a whole other bunch of stuff. So I did that for a few years. I pursued a vocation in religious life and then decided to leave and have a career and all of that. But it's really, really where I encountered it the most was living in New York, right in Manhattan, having a pretty successful theater career. And I can remember a time of walking down uh, 40th Street, which was still a kind of one of the bombed out streets that it was just sort of abandoned. And the wind was howling. (laughs) You know, if you're in New York, those those, uh, skyscrapers and everything create these wind tunnels. And I'm walking into the wind and I've got my hood up and my face is down. I'm looking at things and I'm thinking, I've never been so alone in my life, right? Uh, I got home to my roommate, who's a good friend of mine. And I said to her, this is the loneliest place in the world. And she said, tell me about it. And it was at that moment that I thought, I don't know. I, something needs to change. 
And I had never, when I left the religious order initially, I never abandoned church. I continued to go to church and did all those things. But it was a, I knew it, I needed to step that up. And what that was about was to reclaim the contemplative tradition that I had been taught as a young, young man. Do you have a spiritual life that you've committed to um, at, with, with great depth? And I'm just wondering if you look back on that arc and maybe projecting forward and are maybe surprised how your life is turning out. <laughs> yeah, surprise, I would say surprise is, is a good thing, a good way to describe it. I, I think that overall, when I first entered the monastery this time, uh, people said to me, well, you've done all this theater. I mean, that's nothing like being a monk. And actually, I, I don't think that's true. There are certainly lots of differences. But there are there are several things you do, right, that are similar. Most importantly, people who pursue theater and people who pursue monasticism do it for love. They may not call the reason of love the same exact thing, but theater people are always, when they're doing theater, whatever the theater, whether it's a very serious play or a kind of light musical or anything in between, they are still pointing to something beyond, something beyond what you see on that stage, right? It's different from television or movies. That's the first similarity. The second is that there is a real sense of community among theater people, right? We all lived in Hell's Kitchen and we all uh, lived in, you know, really terrible apartments and met at the same bars to, you know, commiserate about our jobs and passed, as long as somebody wasn't in direct competition with us, passed along ideas about jobs and, you know, various things you could cast. And so, so there was a real sense of community there as we strive for in, in a monastery. And finally, you do it for nothing. You do not go into theater for money, and you don't. You certainly don't become a monk for money. So uh, there were more similarities than not. So allow me to give you, and excuse the pun here, but the final word on quiet. <laughs> I think that... Pursuing some quiet in our lives will lead to an expansion of the quiet. So you have to start somewhere. And if starting somewhere means literally one minute. Now, what I'm talking about here is intentional quiet, where you're saying, I am now being quiet. <laughs> now, what's going to happen for you if you do that is... The first thing that you're going to object to is all of the thoughts that you realize are racing through your head. And one of the things you have to accept is that your brain was wired to have all of those thoughts. You're not doing anything wrong. The point of the quiet is, first of all, to hear those thoughts. And then once you accept that, the next point of it is to start to hear something more eternal than that. Because no matter how important your thought might be, it doesn't equate with eternity. But you have to get through them first. And it doesn't mean trying to push them out or throw them away. It means accepting that they're there and just letting go of it. And accept whatever the next thought and the third thought and the tenth thought and the hundredth thought. Until you can start to hear what is the kind of eternal truth within you? I've been in conversation with Brother James Dowd. Brother James, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with thank us. Thank you, Stuart. It's been great.
That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.